Welcome to the Exchange Podcast by EWL. As advisors to some of the most successful families in the country, Craig Emanuel, Tim Wyburn, and I, Ryan Lure, draw upon some of the best minds in the country. We believe that by exchanging ideas, we can deliver better advice and better outcomes for the families we work for. Now, we're inviting you on this journey. In this podcast, we interview some of the country's best investment managers, business advisors, bankers, and founders to share their valuable insights. And our hope is that with better information comes better decisions, helping you to achieve more financially. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Exchange. My name is Ryan Lur, and in today's episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Harry Sugiato, a portfolio manager of ICG. Harry is responsible for leading ICG's high-conviction traded credit or liquid credit portfolios. Harry and his team are not constrained to the returns of any one type of asset. They can pivot to where the best relative value is within credit. This best ideas portfolio currently has a heavy lean towards sponsored back deals in defensive sectors, typically with loan-to-value ratios of 50% or below, which provides investors with a significant equity cushion before there's any impairment to assets. For those unfamiliar with ICG, it's a global alternative asset manager with origins in Europe. Today, it has an excess of $80 billion in assets under management and is a truly global business with approximately 600 employees across more than 16 countries. It's also listed on the London Stock Exchange and is a member of the FTSE 250. This is a really interesting listen for anyone who has a more income-focused investment strategy or are simply wishing to take advantage of more attractive opportunities in liquid credit that haven't been available for years, if not decades. I hope you enjoy this episode. Harry, welcome to the Exchange Podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having us. Harry, we might just start a bit of background on yourself, your work history, how you ended up obviously in credit within ICG and then maybe if we can just touch on ICG as a business, as a platform, what gives ICG differentiation from other managers in the market? Sure. Um, so my name's Harry Sugiato. Uh, I've been at ICG since 2005 and working in credit for over 20 years. Um, my initial job at ICG was really to work on the research side. So covering individual names and sectors. And then after the, the global financial crisis, we were really opening up our strategies, our open-ended strategies, and I was asked to transition over to portfolio management. In 2012, we launched multi-sector credit at ICG, and that is a suite of strategies that essentially gives a one-stop shop access to everything that we can do within liquid credit. Um, our first was the European total credit and we launched our global total credit in 2017. In terms of what makes ICG unique, and maybe to talk a little bit about the platform that I sit within, uh, our heritage dates back to 1989. We were the first provider of, of mezzanine capital to the European leverage buyout industry. Um, what mezzanine is, is essentially a, a tranche of subordinated capital that's used to essentially fund businesses, buy companies. And from there, we've really diversified uh, into a broad provider of private and liquid capital up and down the capital structure. And we do that globally today. So our, our roots are really in Europe, but certainly the management of the platform understood very early on that, yes, it's good to be local, but actually being global has significant advantages. And now our presence spans from the US into Europe and also into Asia. And we, we really provide a broad suite of offerings to both our clients, but also the private equity industry that we work very closely with. Thanks, Harry. I mean, I think the asset class itself has become really so interesting for investors, particularly over the last 18, 24 months. Credit as an asset class when rates were record lows, it wasn't really selling anybody. But obviously now you've had almost a roller coaster for equities over the past four or five years, first COVID, then obviously shock to markets last year. Credit's been one of the brighter parts to client portfolios and you've had large managers like ICG enter the market, become kind of available to not everyday investors, but sophisticated families. So it's exciting to see that. But what have been the main factors that's really driven demand, changed the opportunity set for credit 
in your day-to-day over the past 12, 18 months? I mean, aside from higher rates, I mean, what else has changed? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Ryan. And, and I think to answer the question of the last two to three years, you have to really go back all the way to perhaps the post-GFC era. Credit, as you, as you said, has historically been considered, I would say, less interesting. Uh, if you think about the structure of a credit investment, you're lending money to a company, sometimes it's floating rate and that company will repay you back, they'll refinance you. And so you give par to get par and receive interest in, in the meantime. Equity is always where it's at. That's the residual claim in the company's capital structure. When valuations are going up, when businesses are expanding, essentially the equity is the, the primary beneficiary of that expansion, that improvement. And so for a decade or more after the GFC, equity, both public and private, was always seen to be where it's at, where the interesting returns reside. And I think what happened in 2020 and most recently in 2022 is the defensive nature of credit alongside the reset of, of base rates has really put credit in the spotlight. What credit is essentially is a priority claim on the company's value. Equity is essentially the residual claim and it's the first to lose as, let's say, value accretion starts to become value attrition or value destruction. And so really from those very basic understandings, you can see that in a difficult economic environment, in difficult markets where things are quite frankly moving in reverse, credit gives an investor a very different risk reward profile. Now, the thing that's changed in 2022 is the reward component of risk reward really became, I would say, much more interesting. And really, there are two things driving it. First is that credit is typically priced for risk free rate. And for a long time, risk free rates were zero or negative. And risk free rates now, if you think about in Australia, but all around the world, are moving very clearly into positive territory. And that really resets the, let's say, the nominal return that credit can earn for its investors. But secondarily, the the credit spread, so essentially the amount of yield you earn above a short-term risk free rate, I guess in Australia you might think of TDs as an example, increased very substantially. Um, In Europe, that was after Russia-Ukraine, but secondarily, the LDI crisis uh, across the UK pension fund industry really injected a huge amount of selling into the market, expanding credit spreads. And so now the overall yield that's available to credit investors in some investor grade markets is in the teens, let's say on on an Australian uh, hedge basis. And so now you've got a defensive profile. So the idea that you've got the priority claim on the company's value, all of that equity essentially represents your, your, your loss cushion. But that priority claim is available at, let's say, a teens total return profile. And that is a position that we haven't been in for a very long time. And and what it does, I believe, is give investors a potent combination of of yield and protection in in what is clearly an uncertain economic and market environment. That's a great overview. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Like I heard a statement the other day that gives a bit of perspective to the point you made, which is equity holders are the guys that get paid last. So if you think about the investors who get paid before them, I mean, if you're in credit, if you've got debt, particularly senior ranking debt secured over you know, assets or businesses, as you mentioned, you've got that more defensive profile. But as you said, you know, in some cases getting kind of mid-teen returns at the moment, which is pretty phenomenal because you know, the long run return profile for equities is 10 to 12% at the high end. So if you're getting mid-teens with less risk, certainly you know, interesting times. One thing I'd like to touch on, there's a bit of a misconception. When you look at credit, you hear all these acronyms, you know, whether it's high yield bonds, CLOs, FRNs, special situations. People hear these acronyms that they don't know about and understand, and it brings back times that might reminisce over global financial crisis and the things that went wrong. Can you simplify what are the securities you look at and what is, you know, the range of the profile, you know, across the strategies of the portfolios that you manage? Yeah, of course, Ryan. And um, if there's one thing our industry does well, it's turns some simple stuff into something that's really complicated. So maybe we'll go step by step through what sits within our strategies and and the bread and butter of what we do on a day-to-day basis is essentially lend money to companies. So Ryan, if you're my borrower, uh, you operate in an industry or multiple industries, um, I'm going to 
you know, meet you and say, okay, you want, let's say, 5 million, 10 million, 100 million. What do you do? Uh, how you leverage? So what kind of debt do you have? Who is your owner? What does their, let's say, sponsorship look like? Uh, what do your cash flows look like? What are the risks to your business? Um, ESG profile, the nature of the document that you want to borrow against. And essentially that, that analysis I'll take away and, and establish, well, do I want to lend you money? And at what type of rate, with what kind of protections? Now, when I finally lend you money, you borrow from me, it will be in a bond format or a loan format. And essentially, I'm giving you par or par minus a discount, and I'm expecting to get that money back a certain period of time. I'm expecting to receive interest all the way in between. That is a bond or a loan. It, the fundamental concept is the same. It sounds more complicated, but it's actually a transaction that many people or many companies enter into on a day-to-day -day basis. That's exactly what it is. And those bonds and loans, certainly in, in the market that I operate in, they trade on a day-to-day -day basis. I am one component of a syndicate, and essentially that investment in you can be traded between members of the syndicate and other financial parties. As a follow-up question to that, if you're originating debt, you obviously conduct all that due diligence. I mean, does the due diligence piece change? Obviously, if you're buying a secondary asset off, you know, another syndicate member or, you know, off kind of another provider, uh, I guess from a valuation standpoint and a risk assessment standpoint, I mean, how does your team as well as, you know, kind of the broader ICG platform help protect investors from, you know, some of the risks that can eventuate within credit? Yeah, that's a good question, Ryan. So, if you're, let's say again, I'll, I'll take the example that you're my my borrower, Ryan. Um, if I've if you're raising money for the first time, one of my team will typically meet you either virtually or in person. Uh, we will ask you all the questions we want to ask. Um, we will often receive uh, an information memorandum, some sets of due diligence, and that will give us, let's say, a better feel for what's going on within your business and whether we want to lend what, what we want to base our decision on. If we are investing in the secondary market, so essentially, Ryan, you have already raised your loan. You maybe raised it with other people and they want to sell or they're contemplating a sale and, and we're con considering buying your loan in the secondary market. We still want to meet you. We still want to undertake the same type of analysis that we would do on, on any transaction. And quite frankly, it's the, it's the right thing to do for our investors. Um, now, one of the big things is you don't have to speak to me, Brian, because quite frankly, you've raised your money, you spent it potentially. Um, and the, let's say, desire and, and need for you to meet me is, is relatively low, someone on my team. What we do and what we benefit from at ICG is ways and means of, of really getting that access. And, and that can be by speaking to your owner and saying, ICG works with you know, the owner on multiple different transactions and we have deep history and great experience. Um, can you get Ryan to call Harry and tell him what's going on with his business? And so one thing about the secondary market is getting the information to make an investment decision can be more challenging, but there are ways around that. And, and to be clear, um, it's important, irrespective of the market you're operating in, that you have process, that eyes are on the investment before you make it. And, and that's absolutely something that, that we prioritize. One thing you touched on there is obviously, you know, having deep relationships is pretty key, both from a due diligence standpoint, but also, you know, to attract the kind of borrowers um, or counterparties that you want to lend money to. Going back to the, you know, the origins of ICG, so you mentioned, you know, really started out largely European focused. That was really the, the origins of ICG. And then you moved to become the global business that you are today, managing circa, I think it's $80 billion. Correct me if, if that figure's a little bit higher today. It probably is. But clearly moving from a, a largely European focus to a, a truly global manager, building those relationships, I imagine, takes time. So an existing manager in the US, I mean, how do you build out that platform, that capability and those relationships since effectively firm inception what's been involved throughout that that process and you know what's been kind of the driver of building out that global presence yeah it's a good question ron and and just to set you straight it's it's 82 billion us dollars so so number was a little low but uh who, who's counting quite frankly 
what I would say is is it's true. Our, our let's say our our home turf is Europe, but we understood. You know, ICG has successfully, I think, made the right strategic moves to grow the business over time, and that's over multiple decades. And, and that's not down to me, by the way. Um, we decided to go into the US shortly after the GFC, and, and what we did was quite frankly, you're right, Ryan. You know, and if if any of your clients are ever expanding into a new market, it, it is hard to do it from scratch. It is hard to break into existing relationships with existing competition. What we did was really hire great people with exceptional pedigree that had those relationships. Um, and so the team in the US today is led by a gentleman called Brian Spenner, who was one of the, I would say, uh, senior members of the Blackstone corporate debt team. And so when we hired him, um, and asked him to build our platform in the US, really we had a ready-made business leader that had that Rolodex, those relationships that, were, that we were able to um, to leverage to, to really kickstart our development. And, and now we have over 50 investment professionals operating in a variety of different verticals in the US market. And, you know, I think one thing is ICG is an established platform. It has great infrastructure. We do not struggle to hire people, talented people. And that's something that that is very key to developing a business over time. And, and that's really what has got us to, to over $80 billion today. One thing I find interesting, I mean, we come across managers every week doing kind of DD, maybe could be 10, 15 different groups a week. And, you know, especially on the equity side, I mean, it can be the case where you have a local manager that manages, you know, portfolio of global equities. And you can do that from the other side of the world. Whereas I feel like credit is a deeper market, much more kind of relationship-driven market. You do need that feet on the ground, global presence where you know and understand the nuances in each particular market. And, you know, even something I found kind of surprising this year is you look at what happened with Credit Suisse, you had effectively convertible bonds. I mean, you know, many Australian investors would compare that to, to bank hybrids here, which have a very different profile as we spoke about at the start of this call, I mean, bonds or credit in various different structures are meant to be paid before equity holders, whereas, you know, for the Credit Suisse convertible, it wasn't. So investors into that particular security were wiped out, whereas I think equity holders might have got uh, 60, 70 cents in the dollar thereabouts. So how important is it to have that local presence in all of the geographies that you operate in the markets you operate in? Yeah, and Ryan, I'm going to answer your question in two ways. So the question about Credit Suisse and what happened with the AT1s relative to the equity, we don't invest in financials, but we don't do bank hybrids. So um, I won't give, let's say, a view on the rights and wrongs of that. Um, clearly, there was, uh, let's say, some documentary provisions that, that were used to, to sort of engineer that outcome. Um, what I would say about Locus, and, and there is a question about whether if you had been a local investor in that situation, whether you'd have, let's say, had a very different outcome to somebody in investing internationally. Putting that aside, what we often find is we're dealing with when we're lending money, we're lending money to companies and we're lending money to owners, shareholders, financial sponsors. Um, those companies, sometimes it's hard to understand what they actually do unless you are a customer or you are in that market. Um, sometimes the owners are local. Private equity isn't always, a, let's say, a global industry. Some of these sponsors that we meet, they operate in one specific niche, in one specific country or, or region. And firstly, it's important to understand what a company does. You can't always find that by looking at a spreadsheet for three hours sitting in an office in London or Sydney or New York. You need to be in that market. You need to speak the language. Um, also, if you are, and a large part of what we emphasize is understanding the governance, the sponsorship of a company, how it will be run, what the, you know, say qualities uh, and values of the owner will be. Well, if that's somebody that you deal with locally on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to get a much better insight into their behavior and their sponsorship than if you, for example, just meet them over a Zoom or a team's call. Um, and so, and when things go wrong, the game is played very differently in different countries. Bankruptcy in the US is not the same as bankruptcy in France, in Spain, in Australia, or in the UK. And having an understanding of, let's say, 
how the rules play, how you need to behave, also who you need to call is actually incredibly important. And so for us, those types of aspects really you know, matter a lot all the way through a deal lifecycle, both in the good times, but also in the difficult times. Moving more to, I guess, macro, you know, how that shapes the decisions within the strategy or strategies that you're involved in, uh, that your team's involved in. The first part of my question is, if we're taking Harry's lens of the world, what are kind of the risks and the opportunities that you're seeing at the moment? And then I guess the second question to that is, where do you see the most opportunity at a you know security level uh, and at a geographic level? And I'm mindful that you've given me this overview in previous meetings, but um, you know, for our listeners, that'd be great to understand. Sure, uh, and happy to. Um, okay, so. First question first, um, where do we see risk and opportunity, Brian? And then and then maybe we'll go into a little bit more detail around that. Um, and just to take a step back, in multi-sector credit, we've got what is called a broad opportunity set, which is essentially a fancy phrase for investment universe. And what we are able to do is put our clients' money into the market or the geography that we think offers the best risk reward at any given point in time. And that could be great yields, but that could also be plain defense. If we think the world is a difficult place, well, can we put our clients' money into a place that, that will allow them to earn a yield and protect downsides? And for us, I think the first first things first is that in a downside scenario, you have, as a creditor, the ability to go, yes, above the equity, and the equity loses first and the credit loses second. But even within credit, you've got the ability to own an investment that ranks above all the other creditors. So you have, let's say, priority upon priority within a company's capital structure, within a company's balance sheet. And that's an extra layer of protection. And historically, that gives, let's say, senior secured creditors, so those at the very, very top of the capital structure, the best possible outcome in a difficult scenario. And that's an area that's pretty attractive right now. Um, so senior secured loans that have priority over other creditors and equity. For us, is a 10% type uh, asset class, um, has good loss resilience. And, and interestingly, was the asset class that saw the biggest, what we call credit spread widening over 2022. So the idea that you're getting paid a lot more for actually taking less risks, that, that's a pretty appealing proposition for us through 2020. And that's played out very well. Just to give you some idea, in the US, in Europe, total returns on senior secured loans on a, on a US dollar hedge basis have been in, in the double digits um, and performed very, very well in 2022. And those asset classes also are typically floating rate. So though the interest you receive resets every month, every three months, every six months, that gives you also protection against all of the volatility in uh, risk-free rates that we've seen over the course of the last, let's say, 24 months. Um, also, in a portfolio context, investors have a lot of risk, rate risk everywhere. You may have it in Australian government bonds. You may have it in international bonds. You also, by proxy, have it in your uh, listed equities portfolio, if anyone's following exactly how uh, all of these stocks trade and, and what drives uh, equity behavior right now. So for us, it's a good portfolio diversification tool. It just certainly takes one big set of risks out of the equation. And since the start of 2022, it's had a very strong track record to really bear that out. So for us, that, that's a pretty interesting allocation right now. Um, on the flip side of that, what we call high yield bonds are typically unsecured, so rank below um, the loans in a company's capital structure. They typically and historically have received worse outcomes in default cycles. So when you lose, you lose big. Um, that for us is an asset class that hasn't widened enough to ref reflect that risk. Um, if you are offered the choice of the two at really kind of comparable yields and spreads, then you know pick the less risky option. That, that for us is a pretty, let's say, obvious decision to make. And that's how we're structuring our portfolios today. So we can earn yield, but we can take less risk, and that, that for us is a good trade-off for our clients. Um, now I'll speak in industry jargon. <laughs> there is one um, part of our, our investment universe called CLOs or CLO debt that we think is very interesting. Now, a CLO is a portfolio of loans, 100 plus, and you essentially put it into a company 
and you essentially tranche what we call tranche the risk. Now, what that means is if you invest in that CLO as a lender against that portfolio, um, depending on where you're lending to, somebody else is taking the risk. So when one company defaults, two companies default, three companies default, often it's a different lender or stakeholder into that vehicle that, that really takes the risk. So you have essentially a form of protection upon protection. So the underlying loans are seen secured, have good historical loss rates, and then you yourself are building in additional protections um, through your investment in that company. That is, for us, uh, an asset class that, one, again, has a huge amount of, let's say, resilience, and historically, they perform very well, even through the global financial crisis, but to offer very elevated yields right now. So that's an area that we are um, you know, relatively overweight in. It's a small part of our portfolios, um, but it does offer for us a good risk reward uh, profile. That makes sense. And I guess from a, a geography standpoint, you know, I think in, in previous catch-ups, I mean, you mentioned that, I guess, from a historical standpoint, you're more overweight European exposure at the moment. So I guess, you know, my follow-on point I'm, I'm going to make here is it seems like there's a lot of opportunity if you can buy attractively into distress or into whether it be the LDI crisis that you mentioned earlier in the UK, whether it's conflict and the related implications in Europe, which I think is more a story around probably sentiment. And, you know, just like in equities, there can be a negative sentiment that takes hold in different sectors, industry. But if you have valuation discipline and you're doing the due diligence, I mean, buying attractively when things get too pessimistic can be very well rewarded. So, I mean, in terms of, I guess, positioning just from a, a geography standpoint and being mindful that, you know, as a, a global firm, uh, you really can have the freedom to follow where you see the opportunities. What does that look like at the moment and, and why is it positioned that way? Yeah, it's a good question, Ryan. So I'm going to make one broad comment and then talk about where we see value right now. Um, there is a long-term view that the economic profile and trajectory of an economy will drive the default behavior in a market. Now, that isn't true in our case, and I'll give you two specific reasons why. If you look at the European um, credit market, the markets that I invest in, particularly in loans, and you look at the sectors that are overweight, that are dominant within that market, they look very different to the economy. The big sectors that we invest in, that we see opportunity, are cable telecom, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, um, and business services, and specifically business software. Now, if you pick up uh, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the AFR, you are going to have read pages and pages about you know, the, the closure of Nord Stream 1, the risk of gas rationing through the winter of 2022, and all of those things that are very, very real, very real risks for the economy. Does that stop um, companies from selling pharmaceuticals? Well, not really. Maybe there's a, a, you know, a certain amount of risk around how you manufacture those pharmaceuticals. Does it stop you paying your cable subscription? Probably not. Does it stop a small business taking out a subscription service for accountancy software ERP, all of these things that are absolutely critical to, quite frankly, the operation of the business or even filing its tax returns. Not at all. And so one thing that is important to understand in the European credit market versus the European economy is the sensitivity to all of those macro risks. And, and for us, there has been, let's say, a decorrelation or delineation of those risk profiles, certainly after the GFC, where private equity, who are large parts of the ownership that we lend to have really sought out defensive business profiles. Um, and that, that creates a much more defensive market, more resilient market to, to what is coming in the European economy. The other thing is that if you select carefully, you can, again, pivot your portfolio away from those risks. So for us, actually, um, you know, you buy the market, you're going to get the market outcome. Actually, for us, it's, it's not necessarily the case. Be specific, be selective and do that well you can get a far superior outcome. Now, there is opportunity, Ryan, as you say. Um, if everyone else is uh, divesting Europe because of clearly the conflict, the economic risk, they're going to sell everything. And they're going to sell everything potentially with very little regard for fundamental profile. And that does create opportunity to pick up 
you know, I would say resilient credits at good valuations. For us, it's a question of even in these risk sensitive sectors, doing your homework, getting in front of management teams, engaging with them, understanding how they're working to mitigate those risks, and then figuring out whether you've got a good investment at the end. And quite frankly, at the end of that decision making process, that an analytical process, you might find you want to sell it. And you know, clearly that that's an option that we always have. So for us, this dispersion and all of this um, I'd say potential risk out there does create opportunity. Clearly you've got to be mindful of you know the downsides as well. But for us, you know, it's uh it's not a let's say one size fits all and one way decision. In terms of having an inflation or interest rate view, I mean often you'll speak to managers where they're predominantly floating rate strategies and the answer will be, well, I'm not too concerned because, you know, if rates go up, we benefit from that. If they go down, you're still earning premium above various fixed income debt instruments. But do you have a view on kind of where we are in terms of, you know, rate cycle? And that probably would vary, I suspect, by region. But what are some of the drivers that you're considering at the moment, if any, and what's your perspective on where rates are, where they potentially might go within the next 18 to 24 months? Yes, that's a good question, Ryan. So so in terms of house you, I think higher for longer, but higher for longer, quite frankly, is becoming the consensus. Um, I, I think what is important is one, and quite frankly, a lot of people have probably appeared on your podcast. And if you look through back episodes, they may have been wrong when they uh, started talking to you in early 2022. So yeah, I think there is, an, it's important to be humble about understanding where something as complex as the global economy is going. And the narrative changes, quite frankly, from week to week. But for us, actually, what is important is to plan for the worst and to really build your scenarios around where the market is right now. And so for us, when we think about rising interest rate trajectory, first things we've got to do is is really understand, well, ask our companies, how are you mitigating it? Are you hedged? How are you hedged? Did you hedge in 2022? In which case you might be a little bit late, or did you hedge proactively in 2021 when when rates were low and buying those hedges was were cheap? Understanding that is is the first place you go before you then start to model the profile higher interest rates into your your financial projections. Everything comes down to cash flow. Everything comes down to can a company pay its interest? Can it pay you back at or before maturity? And so for us, we're going to take an interest rate view, the market interest rate view. We're going to run that through a cash flow statement, a set of projections, and we're going to spit out an answer, and that's going to drive our investment behavior. Now, um, one thing I would say about the narrative that, well, I own floating rates, so it's not a problem for me. My my investors are going to benefit. Clearly, the companies that you've lent money to, they're going to feel the strain depending on how they, uh, their borrowing is structured. That's what that does in the first instance is give creditors more and more of the company's cash flow. If you think about how, and you know, many of your families will have operated businesses in the past, you earn profit, you spend it on your equipment, renewing your equipment, making expansionary investments. You might make an acquisition, but you've got to pay your debt. You've got to pay the interest on your debt. And anything left over is discretionary. So you can pay a dividend, you can buy another company, et cetera. What rising interest rates does is expand the amount of that cash flow that's really earmarked for um, interest. And quite frankly, you have to pay that every month, every quarter, every half year. It creates less room for other stuff. And those, the let's say, typical beneficiaries of the other stuff are going to experience more difficult times, less dividends coming out of the business, et cetera. The equity, again, is quite frankly, the first loser of a rising interest rate environment. There's less money to go around to do other things that would either enhance equity value or pay equity uh, a dividend day one. And the second thing is that, yes, that puts a company in a much more difficult position. Essentially, the cash flow is on a diet. But does it always throw the company, let's say, get the company to fall over? Will there always be a default? As a creditor, your second way out of these situations is, quite frankly, ask the financial sponsor, the owner, to recapitalize the business. Equity can always put money in and reset the balance sheet for what is a 10% interest rate environment, not a 3 4 5% interest rate environment. And again, as a creditor, you really, let's say, have the, the leverage in that discussion. And again, what it comes down to is understanding your equity, who is sitting alongside you in the balance sheet, 
how they're going to behave, how they're motivated, what their objectives are. Um, and then really using that to, to position in that broader discussion. But for us, actually, the first thing is to understand, well, there's this money left over for everyone else. That's their problem generally. And secondly, the option for the other parties, the junior parties in the capital structure, the equity, is essentially to recapitalize. And that's negative for them, and it's positive for the creditors. So again, we always come back to how will the outcomes fare, let's say, stakeholder by stakeholder in the current environment, very different between lenders and shareholders, credit and equity. That's a great answer. It really, in part, answers the next question that I was going to ask, which when we're talking about higher for longer, if that is the consensus, the right one or not, I guess we'll reevaluate that in uh, kind of 12 months or so and um, yeah, see how we fared. But obviously, if rates stay higher for longer, there's a lot of talk at the moment about this refinance wall globally for corporates, at least year to date. If we look at global equities, maybe it's it's potentially turning now in the US, we'll see. But earnings have been largely negative year on year, under pressure, you know, year on year. So if rates and the, the cost of doing business, the cost of borrowing, cost of capital stays higher for longer. As you touched on, we'd assume there's an uptick in corporate defaults or you know stress. So your downside modeling, you reflect on your own portfolio and what's required to happen. What kind of level of event would we need to see before investors start losing capital? I mean, how extreme would that need to be? And I've seen some modeling from ICG and, you know, I was, I was pleased with it. But uh, yeah, it'd be good to hear from your perspective how to think about that. If we think about, again, what scenarios lead to, let's say, lenders starting to lose money, all of the equity that's put into a company day one needs to essentially be wiped out. Um, and if you think about the relationship, the ratio of credit to equity in a typical buyout over the last few years, it's been roughly one to one let's say 50, 60% loan to value uh, in technical terms. What that means is essentially the value of the company you're lending against very simply has to halve before you're, the value of the company doesn't cover the value of the debt that you've put on that company. That is, let's say, a very remote possibility, I think, for a lot of companies even in a higher interest rate environment with lower valuations and economic uncertainty, a lot of bad stuff has to happen before the creditors are not going to be covered by the value of the business. For the equity, clearly, you're on the hook day one. And clearly, in, in an environment where valuations have declined, e the economy is looking uncertain. Those are the stakeholders that, that really are going to feel it first and foremost. Um, for creditors then to be totally wiped out, I think, clearly you've got to go a step further and you know let's be clear even in the global financial crisis where we had a very high level of defaults in 2009 you know creditors actually ultimately did okay in the majority of cases default rates for example were around 10% so 9 out of 10 companies were fine and 1 out of 10 companies defaulted and creditors in a lot of those cases actually were able to recover the value so i think for creditor to lose lose it all and for credit portfolios to lose it all across an entire portfolio, clearly a lot of bad stuff has to happen on an idiosyncratic basis. So a name by name basis, you know, they clearly that's a possibility. But for a market overall, I think that is highly, highly unlikely. Now, inequities, either listed or, or private, you've got a very different risk reward profile. That's where we see actually the, the vulnerability. In terms of the, the portfolio that all the strategies that you run, I mean, how many loans, how many securities are typically, you know, within a portfolio at any, any given time? Yeah, so we think about, and across ICG's platform in liquid credit, we think about 100 to 125 as the sweet spot. And that is for us the right amount of diversification for our clients. So not too many eggs in one basket. Diversified by sector, diversified by asset type, in the case of multi-sector credit, diversified by geography, but giving clients the full benefit of ICG's research platform. The idea that I'm your manager, Ryan, and you know you are paying me a fee. I need to give you something differentiated. I uh, I talk about my unique investment platform, my local presence, my deep history. Well, if I give you a thousand names, quite frankly. You know, you're not getting the benefit of anything, any of that. That's all diluted to, to pretty much zero. So for us, we are clearly sitting within a unique platform. 
we're going to give that to our clients. About 100 to 125 names is, is the right amount of diversification, we believe. Um, so, so that's how we think about it. What it also does is in a higher default rate environment, if we're doing our homework and we're making the right calls, we can achieve a materially better outcome. Uh, and you know, in market drawdowns, it creates opportunity not only to find opportunity, but actually to dodge those risks within the broader market. So that's something that we care about um, very deeply. Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you're not just looking for the return, as you mentioned, you're looking for the best risk adjusted return, which you know is incredibly important in a manager like ICG. I mean, personally, I look for that prior to what's the headline number, what's been the kind of recent return. You really want to know what happens when something goes wrong. You can diversify that out, those risks to a degree, but doing your homework and really making sure that you're valuing each asset appropriately is key. I guess still sticking with the point, and I'll move on from this shortly, that on the point around when things go wrong, can you talk about ICG's turnaround capability, the other teams within the business that can assist when you do have something go wrong? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, that's, um, that's an interesting question. So if things go wrong in our portfolio, I think the first rule is the analyst that made it has to, that broke it, has to fix it. So we don't transfer it that asset in its entirety to another team. Actually, what we want is somebody that has deep knowledge of the business, of the management team, of what's gone wrong to work it out and take responsibility. Um, and we value that. Um, but what we are going to do is bring in additional resource to help that analyst. Um, and many of our direct team, portfolio managers, um, senior heads of credit, have that, let's say, expertise from other situations. Uh, they've been there, they've done that, they know how the game is played, and they will work with that analyst to essentially work out what is often a very time-intensive situation. Um, you know, work out some restructurings, they require a lot of effort, often quite short timeframes, hard deadlines. You need to be able to pedal hard to, to get the right outcome for your clients. And so we may have, in addition to the analyst, two, three, for additional members of the team or maybe working to, to help them with additional skill set, additional bandwidth. Beyond our direct team, we have other teams within ICG that, that have worked in that type of arena. Also, clearly, if the game is being played in different jurisdictions, in different ways, having those contacts through other members of the ICG platform, the right lawyers, the right advisors, maybe some, some language expertise, that's something that we have ready access to within the firm. So so often, actually it doesn't happen to ICG very often, when those situations occur, we can maybe reach out to other members of the team that either have restructuring expertise, that's something that's part of their skill set, or let's say local, legal, or jurisdictional expertise to, again, really enhance our ability to to uh, recover capital for our clients. That's a great answer. And I guess just recapping on the previous few points that we discussed, I mean, I did have an agenda there. So I guess, you know, for investors thinking about what's the case for investing in credit portfolio or credit strategy like the one that, Harry, you speak about in an environment where you've got higher rates, potentially corporate earnings are, are slowing or declining and there's high defaults, you obviously rank above equity holders as a, a credit investor equity holders would need to be completely wiped out before there's any impairment or potential impairment to the credit securities. And even at that point, you've got a number of mechanisms, you know, actions that you can put into place, as you said, I mean, recapitalizing the business, you've got a team that can assist with restructuring, you've got 120, 125 different securities or thereabouts that are diversified across industry, sector, geography. So you can quickly see that this ladder that you go down reduces risk at each step. So if you're you know, comparing kind of equities in this market, as I said at the start of this conversation, you know, typically a 10 to 12% return over a long investment horizon. I mean, if you're getting that potentially above that now with the additional layers of protection, I mean, it's a really exciting time to be looking at, at credit investments like you manage. And I didn't think I'd say that if I was sitting in this chair two years ago. So it's um, really, really useful to understand. I'm not putting you in a position to throw mud here, but where do you think some managers or potential investors, say if they're trying to manage their own portfolio, maybe a small pool of loans, or what, what are the mistakes that people make in this market? 
It's a very good question. And I, I'm going to be careful about not throwing mud, particularly we are an industry that does throw mud. Um, so I will talk about one category of investor that we have, I'd say, been very careful to benefit from, quite frankly, in the last 12 months. Um, in the loan market or the loan asset class, the most dominant form of investor is the CLO. So these are essentially companies that are the sole purpose is to buy 100, 300 loans uh, and own them, manage them, and uh, they get financing on the other side. They get they borrow on the other side. Those <clears throat> types of investors have open books in terms of the rules that they are allowed to play in. Um, and those open books tell you uh, what currency they can invest in, uh, what rating, so uh, credit rating agency category they can invest in, and what price points they can invest in. And everybody knows what those rules are. And where an asset falls outside of those rules, essentially, those investors aren't buying. And in fact, they may be selling. And so for us, if you know the rules and you know that often those rules are not perfect to indicate the quality of the company that they're buying or selling, there's a great opportunity there. Um, you're buying something that everybody else is selling or the largest investor in the market is selling. That creates a great opportunity. So that's an area that we say, you know, have been very careful to understand the behavior of other investors in our market where they're inefficient and take advantage of it. Um, I, I think, um, you know, what I think matters Firstly, also, and we talk a lot about defaults as an industry, the correlation between a low default rate and a good total return outcome for your clients, I actually think that can be quite low. So behaviors where, let's say, an investor is selling just before a default because they don't want the hassle, they don't have the bandwidth, they don't have the expertise to deal with it, and they don't really want to have to front up to their clients. Quite frankly, if that selling is below the fundamental value of the company they're lending against, the recovery value of the investment, if you held it for three, four, five years and really roll up your sleeves to, to get that money back, that's an opportunity for us. And, and we always have the opportunity to, to sell alongside everything else if we think there's downside. But if we think actually, you know, we've got the team, we've got the expertise to manage it, you know, take a board observer seat, you know, really sit with the business and work with it that's an opportunity for us and we're not going to sell and maybe we're going to buy. And so that is for us in this cycle can be a good source of value. And we're going to be, let's say, flexible and versatile about our decision-making around those, those underperforming situations. No, it makes sense. And I think what I was kind of reading between the lines there was that at least one of the takeaways I had was that if you're too narrow a mandate in this market, you don't have flexibility to take advantage of the opportunities. Obviously, you said multi-sector credit. If you had to abide by a particular mandate where certain investments need to be a particular grade of credit and you need to take external reporting agencies' word for obviously that grade without forming your own opinion, you know, the rigidity of that restricts true price discovery. I hope I got that right, that that was kind of one of the key takeaways there, that having a broader mandate, being able to form your own assumptions rather than rely on external parties and really execute on the capability in the platform ICG has makes a, a tremendous difference. Well, Ryan, I'll put it one way. So you're relying on two things with that type of mandate. First is you're really the opinion of an external party is driving what you can invest in. So you better hope that external party is right all the time. And that external party is a rating agency. And um, you know, we have to careful what we say here, but clearly, are they the perfect indicators of default now and historically? And, and actually, at the micro level, we think, no, there are some big gaps in how they approach credit ratings today that we are able to exploit. And, and you know, feel free to give me a call and I'll tell you all about it. Um, the second is... If you are defining your investment universe at a certain grade or in a certain market, then the valuation of that market, as in the credit spread or the yield that that market offers you, that, that's all you can take. And as much as you may hate that market right now or any at any point in time, well, you don't really have a choice. You have arbitrarily defined the playing field just to include that. And so for us, the, the key things are, quite frankly, don't define your playing field by, by rules that are imperfect. 
And also don't force yourself into a bad risk reward play just because you've set the rules up a certain way. So one key beneficiary or benefit of multi-sector credit is, quite frankly, you can be agnostic and that can be range of names, that could be industries, that could be geography, but that also means yields and returns. Something I find interesting, I mean, I, for a long time, Howard Marks puts out his memos and, you know, he talks about, you know, some some of these things and, you know, big fan of of Howard Marks. For anyone that doesn't know who he is, I suggest Googling him, you know, reading kind of some of his past memos because it's, yeah, it's always a fun read. But yeah, I guess across the board, not just in this asset class, but any, I mean, you can pay an excessive price for a great asset. You can pay a great price for an asset that isn't a market leader, but obviously the price you pay and the valuation discipline that you have can be the difference between getting a good return or not, or having a margin of safety that gives you that protection mechanism that you you know you need to plug for Howard there. Maybe you guys probably go head to head on um, some parts of the market potentially. Oh, well, I'll say uh, I definitely know who he is and I've read his books. Uh, he has no idea who I am, I'm sure. So, Harry, any last words for why look at a portfolio like yours that ICG yourself you know manage? You know why now? What's the last plug? for a potential investor considering multi-sector credit? Yeah, I think we've covered it all. But I think if there's one thing that many of our clients are talking or looking at right now, it is the idea, as you said, Ryan, all the way through, that position in the capital structure and the risk-reward is totally upside down and totally different to where it was, let's say, earlier in the cycle. If you can earn contractually a team's return with all the downside protection within credit. And that's, by the way, that's a quarterly pay um, uh, type of contractual asset class. Or you can earn some pretty variable dividends, although you know I think the ASX pays pretty well right now, given the constituents. Residual claim, you know, downside as well as upside, and everyone's learning that in the last 24 months. I think you have to think very, very carefully about how you want to position your portfolio in the current environment. And the risk reward between credit and equity is totally, uh, let's say, inverted to where it has been historically. And that has big, wide-ranging ramifications for, for portfolio construction. Yeah, completely agree. Now, Harry, thanks so much for your time. Some really valuable insights for our clients, for our listeners, and always enjoy catching up. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan.